Welcome to Authors Unbound. I'm Patrick Davis, publisher and editor-in-chief of Unbound Edition Press. And I'm Peter Campion, executive editor of Unbound Edition Press. Peter, you know a whole lot of poets. You swim pretty deeply in the poetry pond, and you've introduced us to so many interesting poets. I just want to know, out of all of the poets that you know, how many of them are MMA fighters? Oh, you've got me there, Patrick. I mean, I think you'd have to go to an MMA gym and rifle through the notebooks of backpacks and gym bags to see if you could find any poems. But there's really only one that I know of, who is, of course, the poet we're talking with today, Carlo Matos. And he's such a great poet. He's a Chicago-based poet. He's a professor. He is an MMA fighter. He identifies as bi, poly, pan, and it has just such an expansive voice that captures all of this that is uh, who he is. And I'm excited that we're going to get to talk with him today. It's been a while since we've seen each other. It's so much uh, creative energy that Carlo has. He also writes fiction. He started out as a musician in uh, both classical music and grunge. Uh, he talks about that and... Uh, it's a really fun conversation. It really is. He is actually one of my favorite folks to talk with because unlike so many of our literary friends, I'm talking about myself here. If I don't have my nose down in a book, I'm not sure what to talk about. But uh, when you talk with Carlo, you can talk about motorcycles as quickly as you can talk about parenting. You can talk about love triangles as quickly as you can talk about Portuguese history. On this blustery fall day, we're going to bring the heat a little bit with Chicago poet Carlo Matos today on Authors Unbound. Just before we pressed uh, record, he was telling us he saw somebody on a fall day riding a unicycle, and that sounds like about the best introduction to a podcast we've had yet. Hi, hi Carlo. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I did see a man on a, uni on a unicycle yesterday because it was 80 degrees here, and of course today's 45, so I don't think he's out today on Saturday. <laughs> No, well, you know, Midwesterners in their shorts in the winter. So, That's true. Uh, there's no no telling what might happen. <laughs> it's been a while since we've seen each other. I think last time we saw each other, we were in person at the University of Minnesota with Peter for a beautiful reading. And you were reading from your best-selling poetry collection, We Prefer the Damned. How's life been since we saw you about a year ago? Things have been great. I mean, it's been sort of publishing heaven these last few years. My last book had come out in 2017. And then I had this kind of like big, I wouldn't call it a dry spell. I was writing, of course, but like this big publishing blank window for a number of years. And then it was sort of like one, two, three right away. And I went from being really excited to being really overwhelmed very quickly. <laughs> so very exciting, very awesome. At the same time, like, oh boy, you know, attention for one book is uh, a full-time job. And when you've got a second one that comes out too too quickly and then a third one on the horizon, it was 
maybe too much of a good thing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. We will get to some of the depths of We Prefer the Damned for sure. But before we do that, tell us about the other two books since we were last together. I know you published a novel and more poetry. I've been working on this novel for about seven and a half years, which is still not the longest I've taken to write a book. Ten years for the first one, that was from start to finish. But it was the first one, and that one required a lot of finding before you know, it was ready to be sent into the world. But my first novel came out, and it's called Ashmal Kriadash, or Names We Inherit. It's often used to indicate like a brat. Malkriada, uh, if you if you parse the word, means poorly raised. If you are poorly raised, that's like, you know what I mean? Like, that's the end. But the main characters in the novel are in a band called and so that's where the novel begins. And it was just supposed to be a buildings roman, but I think it came out more like House on Mango Street, which is actually totally great. Like that's even better. Yeah, you know? yeah, it is. Um, so yeah, so that that came out in January. So I'm still kind of in the middle of trying to get some people to read that one. Mostly, it's been getting attention, unsurprisingly, from the Portuguese American, Portuguese Canadian side of things, since the characters are East Coast Portuguese American kids who grow up. I mean, it's a building Truman, right? So that's all the book was supposed to be. But I wanted it to be the most accessible thing I ever wrote, but I failed. So (laughs) this seems to be like my ongoing life goal is to write a book that everybody says, wow, so accessible because everything, every time I think I've nailed that, I haven't nailed it. That's where I'm going aesthetically these days. Well, you just have to have better SEO for your novel, right? (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Make those pages clickable, Carlo. Come on. (laughs) I'll get there. I'll get there. Okay. So that one came out. And then uh, I have a new book of poetry coming out sometime in 2023. The, The date hasn't been set yet, but from Flower Song Press. And this one is a collaboration. So pretty excited about the work that's in there. It's the kind of work where you're like, I never could have written these. And my collaborator, Amy Sierra Baptista, who's also a Portuguese American poet, these are just like something that we forged together. And I think that's when you know a collaboration is working. And the editing process was so effortless because we were just merciless and not in a bad way, meaning like, revise what you want, don't even tell me. And I'll do the same thing. And if you notice that something is missing that you liked, put it back in. And then, you know, but if you don't notice, then maybe it didn't belong there. And that's how we did it. And that sounds good in theory, and often that probably doesn't lead to good collaborations, but it did for us. Like We went at it like the book belonged to us, not to each other, and it didn't really cause any issues. And I think the work really bloomed because we weren't defending our territory or whatever. You know what I mean? Like I have no idea who started what, who ended what. I don't even care, you know, which is how I know it, it was right. But the book's pretty different from what I've done before, and yet it's still of a kind. And I think that's how you know things are working aesthetically. Like it shouldn't just be the same thing, but if it's kind of a curveball, then maybe something's off there too. I mean, it's Ann Carson. I, I've been wanting to write an Ann Carson Red book, like Autobiography of Red or Red Doc. Like when I read those books, sure. I was like, here it is. This is what I want. I want to do this. And I just didn't have the right project for it. And Book of Tongues, which is what it's called, it's called the Book of Tongues, the Dead Letters of Pedro and Inez is that book. And it's because it centers around a historical couple from Portuguese history, which have this ghastly, ghastly past and somehow is considered a kind of rom- romance 
in Portuguese culture, which I find profoundly disturbing, given that there's a beheading and other such things um, in it. So, wow, yeah, yeah, it's a twisted story. It makes Romeo and Juliet look like positively fun and PG by comparison, you know. Uh, but uh, so, yes, yeah, so we took this woman Inez de Castro, who was a Portuguese noblewoman who was sleeping with the prince. And the king did not like that. And so he had her taken care of and nearly brought the country to civil war. And so we took the character of Inez, who had been sort of silenced by King Manuel, and gave her her voice back. And that's where the Book of Tongues comes from. I have a new book to read. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to give it to you, Patrick, but I don't know if it was if it was something you wanted, but you know, it wasn't just mine. <laughs> no, I got no worries. I think you might have liked it, which is a bummer. <laughs> oh, we looked forward to it. So it's coming out next year, Carlos? Yeah, sometime next year um, from Flower Song. So I look forward to that. And it'll be nice not to have to push the book on my own because uh, what started the book had nothing to do with Inez de Castro. It had to do with us being bored at poetry readings, being like, ugh. Poetry readings are so boring. We, we're boring. You know what I mean? Like, not just like critiquing other people. Like, we suck. And like, Amy and I come from performance backgrounds. We're both theater people and I was a musician, etc. And we were like, why can't we bring that? We need to bring that. And she's like, well, why don't we write some persona poems in the voices of Pedro and Inez? Because she had one poem she had written about Inez de Castro. And I was like, yeah, that's a great idea. And then we can kind of add some performative elements to it. And then we were like three poems in. And it was like, oh, crap, we have a book. You know what I mean? And then it became like a different, more massive, more interesting project. And so fun. Uh, we published, I think, five or six in an anthology called They Said. And it was all collaborations. And so we did a bunch of readings all over the place uh, in the Midwest. And Amy and I performed together. And it was like, okay, this is so much better. Like, th this is what it should be like. It should be performative. And I've never gotten so many positive responses from a reading. You know what I mean? Like, I've always felt like with my other books, it's like, eh, just go read it. You don't need to hear me read it. It's boring. Just get the, here's the book. And if you have any questions, send me an email. You know what I mean? Like, I always felt like that was a lot more interesting, you know, or I always joke, but I kind of want to do it that I'd go and just tell stories about the book and not actually read from it. Just be like, I'm going to tell you stories. And if the stories are interesting, go buy the book and I'm sure you'll love it, but you don't need to hear me read it, you know? Well, now, I, I mean, I feel like I'm cruelly like counteracting your plan because my <laughs> next question was going to be, would you please read us a poem? I picked one out in advance in case you wanted to hear. Here's a letter from Inez to Pedro. Pedro, in life, I was a mother. In death, a queen. In death, a lynx. In death, the breath and the warning. The dead speak their own and dally in all the rogue phonemes of villains and sycophants and children gone mad from a moment without end. A head, my own, that never seems to hit the floor, a voice that is never quiet, gone. I was birthed, for to be born is to be rent, to be born is to be torn from a page white and terribly blank, to be born is to burrow deep into a fig's ancient skin, to die and be eaten while your child spreads wings and intones the words again and again as spell or chorus. It is why my women, the ones to come down the generations, gave my name to the fig and the wasp and let the sting quiet their voices, but never their tongues. A wasp eater is more than a wasp queen. 
In death, I come to the very edge of knowing, and over centuries my tongue will be taken and retaken by force or by guile. It will found kingdoms and doom empires tired of their own successes. They will say it whispers incessantly that it cannot stand the quiet, that it longs and longs. Inez. How fantastic is that? Thank you. The, yeah. the rogue phonemes of villains and sycophants. I'm not going to forget that. I'm going to lay claim to that. I don't know if it was mine. <laughs> <laughs> this is based uh, in a real story. That... They were historical and then became literary. So they were real people. And Pedro was married to someone else. And Inez, she and Prince Pedro were next in line to be the royal couple of Portugal. And Inez was one of her ladies-in-waiting. And Pedro fell in love with Inez. And so he gave Costanza a couple children, but they were sickly. So when he started sleeping with Inez, uh, obviously King Manuel, his dad, was worried about the secession of the throne because now he had children who also had a claim to the throne. So as far as the story goes, and it is retold in, in the book, there was a Sunday and uh, Pedro went out falconing, as one does, and the king sent three assassins to Inez and they beheaded Inez right in front of her kids. And so Pedro, when he got back and found out what would happen, was like, hell no. And he raises an army and marches on his father. And supposedly, his mother is, you know, these Portuguese boys, his mama's boys, you know, his mother was like, <laughs> don't do this. And, and I, apparently Pedro was like, all right. <laughs> and so he waits two years until his father dies. So King Manuel was elderly and then he becomes the king. And so, yeah, so that's, <laughs> that's, that's what's at the center of this. <laughs> this is why we read literature from other cultures, right? Because... The stories are universal and entirely new at the same time. I wish I had Amy here, if you could hear her do it. There's just something about the way she reads. And we don't read gender-wise. We we will read whoever we feel like reading. So she'll read Pedro and I'll read Inez like all the time. And that seems to work better than if we were like, I'm Pedro, you're Inez, you know, like it was a play. We don't do it that way and it seems to work. I love that it's historic and it's fact-based and it's narrative and it's epistolary and it's poetry. And there's all of these forms woven together to tell this story. Have you written that way before? I love the epistolary tradition. I have written persona poems before and I've written epistolary poems before. I return to it because I have such a big background in theater. I was a playwright and a director for a long time. Um, it was simultaneous. I was also writing as a poet, but at, at one time in my life, what I wanted to be more than anything else was to be a successful playwright. That didn't happen, but that has left a huge impact on all of my other work. So uh, it doesn't surprise me that we would pick two characters and just milk them and see how far they go. It just felt like what a playwright might do if he wanted to write a poem, you know what I mean? <laughs> so something like that. In reading uh, We Prefer the Damned, it struck me that cinema is also an influence on you. And I guess I was thinking about cinematic action. And I don't know, I could be wrong, but I wonder if that resonates with you. No, totally. I mean, I'm not a cinephile. I mean, I watch 
everything, right? Like you got to keep some things in your life that you are not trying to be an expert in. You know what I mean? Like I have enough things that I want to be an expert in. And although there's joy in the knowing, there's also something that is lost. And so cinema is like, I would, is not something I want to know about, but it's like ever present in my life. So yeah, like there's Alfred Hitchcock in there, right? There's a, a poem called Vertigo where I'm stealing stuff from Alfred Hitchcock. So it's weird that it got in there. It somehow managed to like penetrate, even though I'm always, I'm I'm not pretending to be someone who was like, ah, yes, I was deliberately working in, you know, cinematic references, like music. Yes. Like there's a lot of music. And I think mostly because it was with music stars that I started to wonder about myself. You know what I mean? Like with, with George Michael and other people like that, where I was like, yeah, I really like him. And I think it's more than just he's cool. You know what I mean? But yeah, no, I definitely like the, I really liked using all the Alfred Hitchcock stuff because uh, I was talking about Vertigo. That's not even my favorite one. Like I really love Rear Window. Rear Window is one of the most bizarro movies of all time. And it's the closest movie to a play that I've ever seen. This is how, if you were going to do a play and translate it into a movie, it would look like this because I've seen so many plays become movies and they're bad movies. For instance, um, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, right? The movie's excellent, okay? But what's better? Well, the play is better. Well, why? Containment, okay? The problem with a movie, right, is there's pressure on the filmmaker in order to use cinematic visual language, right? Well, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf happens in one room, essentially, on stage if you watch the play and it's the containment of that room that oppressive containment which makes that play what it is there is no escape okay you are stuck within the narrative bounds of these two people who are master storytellers and not even halfway crazy okay but when you do it in a movie i could sense i could kind of feel it i could feel the director being like where could i go to make this a movie. All right, let's go outside. All right, let's go to this bar down the street, right? Like there was like this pressure to add visual cues. And though it doesn't wreck the movie at all, so one of my favorites, I show it in my classes all the time, but it becomes more amorphous. It becomes flabbier. And you can't have that in this play. Is there a chance that Pedro and Inez, as you have rendered them in in these letters, are the seed of a thought for a play? It no. It sounds like it. No. <laughs> no. I think it would ruin it. It's actually um, like a cyclone or it's a black hole. It's stupid, but that's what it is. Like there's the moment of her beheading and that moment freezes everyone in time. And so they're forever circling this moment. And so it's recursive. It's obsessive. It's repetitive. And I think that's why when I switched the form and I got increased compression, that helped. And it also undermined this idea that this was a story. I think if I tried to dramatize them, I think I would wreck it. (laughs) Uh, What it has led is to a follow-up book, which where we're doing a similar thing. And we're just starting out. We got like 20 pages on this one. It's an American landscape. It's Portuguese Americans this time, not Portuguese. And it has the same format, the same style, the same compression. It's epistolary again, but it's very much influenced by the plague and by being trapped in houses. And it has a kind of weird apocalyptic feel, though there's no apocalypse that occurred. I have high hopes for this one. I think this one's going to be something special. the, The poems we've written, in my mind, are already better than the ones from Book of Tongues. And I'm just like, 
this could be something. But we'll see. We'll see if it goes anywhere. It's too too early to tell. Fantastic. You know, Carlo, thinking of We Prefer the Damned and one of the things that captured our attention with the book when you brought it to Unbound Edition Press was the intersectionality that is part of the book, your Portuguese uh, heritage, your Portuguese-American identity, your identification as by poly pan and i recall one of the things that you said to us during the editorial process was that you grew up in a culture where there was no language for bisexuality there was no language for who you are and there are a number of poems in the collection that come to mind in terms of doing that definitional work. I'm thinking particularly of cursing and bisexual, for example. I wonder whether it's that poem or another one from We Prefer the Damned. I wonder if you might read one of those poems for us. Sure. Um, do you want cursing and bisexual? I love that poem. Okay. Sure. That's, I, that's my personal favorite, too. Oh, good. Glad to hear it. Cursing and bisexual. Don't say it. A definition. Silly. Foolish either or, but also to be infatuated with, to be daft in love, both, neither. Daft as in, I will be your father figure. Daft as in, you got to have faith. Daft as in, I'm never going to dance again. I'm sorry for the word daft and all its pejorative nonsense. I've always been a sucker for a word thrusting a single vowel. How unsafe and alone I feel when we are happy, still flipping in secret that first wish cigarette in a box of Marlboro Reds like when I was in high school in the 90s. It shakes me to find the worst kind of deviousness is the kind done without deception, done in the full cognizance of doubt and credulity. I think you were made for beauty, but were born into savage violence the American suburbs, all that hateful quiet banging throughout the night. Like George Michael, my first boy crush, we took our lies and made them true somehow, realized that the difference between childhood and adulthood is the illusion that you would have done something. Like how the world is wretched, but for the wrong reasons, like how talent should be enough to get us through, but never is. You believe... Clothes do not make the man, but you look pretty in a dress. I'm sorry for the word pretty, but you can be right and still regret it. I saw a picture of you with another boy on Facebook, also your wife, and realized what I had always wanted. You proved to me there is danger in leaving things unnamed. And when I finally gave it one, freedom, you two were the first I told, cursing tongues which is another name for joy. Such a great poem. The collection was originally called The Bye Book. And speaking of stories, Carla, I wonder maybe if you want to share the story of the okay. title of the book. <laughs> this story is epic. This is, I mean, it's almost unbelievable. And yet there it was. So the book was originally called We Prefer the Damned. <laughs> Okay. And I was sending it out there and it was, it was sort of like tongues, like it was getting attention, but nobody was taking it. So I was like, what the f what is going on here? So I like send it to one of my, one of my bi friend readers, right? <laughs> she's the one I send my work to. And I'm like, is this bi enough? 
You know what I mean? Like, what is this? this work? <laughs> and so like I sent her the book and I was like, what if I change the title to like the buy book? Like, are people just like missing it? Are they not getting it? Is it just not like maybe if I just push them a little bit, it'll make sense. So I changed the title to the buy book and the first place I sent it to was Unbound. And Patrick writes back and he's like, oh, we want the book. And I'm like, yay. And he's like, the, the title is a little bit on the nose, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Which of course made me feel like, oh, thank God, this is somebody who actually gets it. Like this is the person who who like knows what this book's really about. And then it was like, I think we should call it, it's up to you, we should call it When We Prefer the Damned. And I was like, what <laughs> on earth is happening here? I come down to my office and I take a picture of my manuscript. And on the front, it says, When We Prefer the Damned, printed, crossed out, and underneath written in pen, the Bible. Yep. <laughs> so I'm like, you're not going to believe this, but this was the original title of the book. And I mean, it was just like one of those things where you're like, yeah, this is the right place for this book. Yeah. It really is, you know? Yeah. Books contain their titles. You yeah. just have to find the shiny penny inside of them. <laughs> you know, sometimes yeah. it takes somebody else. Peter, do we want to look at our Proust questionnaire? Do you have something else you'd like to yeah. talk with Carlo about? You know, I mean, you don't have to use names for this one, but one of the questions on the Proust questionnaire is, what quality do you most deplore in a writer? <laughs> you know, it's not qualities necessarily, um, because I feel like even stuff that I tell my students never to do, the right person does it. And I'm like, well, they're good at it, <laughs> you know, but I hate <laughs> time travel. I loathe time travel and dream sequences. If I never see another dream sequence in my life. I will be too happy, right? It's just the flabbiest writing with dream sequences. And time travel is so aggravating because if you don't do it right, which almost no one does, there are no stakes. If you can just chain stuff, then why do I care about your stupid story? I don't. It makes me so mad because <laughs> there's so much time travel in, the, in TV right now. My partner loves sci-fi stuff, which is fine, but there's a lot of time travel in the sci-fi and I just have to be like, I'm going to go in the other room. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't want to watch this. <laughs> That's great. It's literally an escape hatch. You can write it, yourself it into the corner. Without stakes, what's the point? You know, you can pick between these two questions. Well, okay. you, can, you, you may do whatever you would like, but here are two questions. Either which words or phrases do you most overuse or which writerly talent would you most love to have? What phrases do I overly use? Um, which writerly talents? I think with phrases, it's more like rhetorical devices. Like I find myself saying this this construct that I did use in Damned a couple times, and I'm like I just started writing some new poems for the first time in like two years, and I keep using this phrase where I say how, like how something 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 something, like not a question, right? And I'm finding that that's becoming a tick, like it's appearing over and over again, how, you know, we smile at one another. And, you know, I don't know where that comes from. It's very strange. And another one is because of Sandra Cisneros, because not only do I love Mango Street, but I've been teaching it for 20 years. And I know that book like inside and out. And there is one section, it's a chapter called Sire, where Esperanza is dreaming about what this boy sire is doing with his girlfriend around the corner, right? She's going through puberty and she's resisting 
these things about herself because she's terrified of ending up like so many of the women in her environment, just married and her life over, right? And she says, how does he hold you? Is it like this? And that little construct there has, it's an earworm. It appears over and over in Damned, and I had to cut out most of them. And it even was in the novel because I was writing the novel at the same time. And so I had to be like, which ones are essential? <laughs> and all others must be removed because they're, I don't know. I love, I just love that. I don't know what it is about. It's just a couple of questions, these tiny little questions. There's one poem in particular in Damned where it's like, is it why do, is it, you know, how should or something like that. Like that's yep, straight yep. from Mango Street. And I left that one in, but I have to go back and like X them out literally by the dozens because they're just everywhere. Your equivalent of time travel. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> seriously. That would be a legitimate complaint, I think I would say. You're right. <laughs> My bad. Peter, what else are you thinking? Well, I was going to ask you, how does a MMA fighter become a poet? And then I wondered oh, maybe it's the other way around. How does a poet become an MMA <laughs> It is the other way around um, in this case. But I thought a lot about this, about who I am and who I want to be and how that manifests in my work or what my work should be. And it's like, I'm that guy who never wants to belong, but then is really sad when he doesn't belong. If I could really say like, what's up with my life? I'm like perpetually the dude who doesn't belong because I'm like, I'm an athlete, but I'm not a jock, right? In school, I was a good student, but not a nerd. I don't want to use that word, but you know what I'm saying? Like I was in theater, but I would also beat the shit out of you if you said anything I didn't like, you know, like I was reading Kierkegaard when I was in high school, not really understanding any of it, but still reading Kierkegaard, you know, like I've always been that guy who just refuses to be put into any kind of, you know, shape mold. And yet I like, I'm almost perverse about it. You know what I mean? So I'm always like searching out the extremes of things. So he's I'm like, yeah, I have a PhD and I'm an academic, but I also, you know, spend my weekends kicking people in the face. You know what I mean? Like, yes, I love very difficult, super challenging literature, but I also love ninja movies. And I have a weakness for, you know, Chuck <laughs> Norris and Westerns. And I love classical music, but I also love Pantera. You know what I mean? Like I was a clarinet player, but also when a lead singer and guitarist of a grunge band. And you know what I mean? Like, it's like, yeah. I do all the things. And the cool thing about doing all the things is that there's so much life that you're getting to lead. I say all the time that I'm really terrified that this has all been a dream. And that I'm going to wake up and I'm really 15 and I'm still sleeping in my parents' bedroom in Somerset. Like I have that as an actual nightmare that terrifies me to no end. To be like, mm. this is all too good to be true. You know what I mean? Like, I must do all the things because it might not be real. You know? <laughs> Something like that. At least, you know, it's not a dream and it's definitely not a dream sequence. Oh God, I hope not. Oh, God. I know, right? <laughs> that would be the ultimate hellscape for me, right? Being trapped in a dream sequence. And particularly that one. <laughs> you know, Carlo, as you describe these various contradictions that you contain in a Whitmanian sort of expansiveness, one of my favorite endorsements comes from Paula Nevis, and it reads, these are unsparing love poems with a fierce fighter's joy at their core. And it strikes me that both the love and the fight are always there. How do you wrestle those together on the page? They're actually easy to wrestle with because they're not very different. When you are a fighter, right? Not when you're on the street, maybe. You know what I mean? Like that's a, maybe something different. 
but as a martial artist, you know, it's really all about about love. You know what I mean? That's what it really is. Like all those boys that I worked out with, it wasn't romantic because that's not who they were, right? But there was in our pushing our bodies to their ultimate limits. You do things when you're a fighter, a martial artist that you just thought are impossible. And it's so bodily and it's so intimate and fun, of course. And so that is not very different. I could be describing sex there, right? You know what I mean? Or romance. It doesn't have to be just sex. I mean, sex is an easy comparison there, right? But it's, you know, that's what romance is. If there doesn't have that kind of raw edge, if it doesn't have that kind of pushing to the limits, that's what's the same about poetry and relationships and literal fighting and all of the things is if there's nothing at stake if there's not a, a pushing beyond the normal, right? If there's not fear, even that, wow. then there's no point. Don't do it. Go do something else. This is like you were saying earlier about time travel. If there are no stakes, who cares? Romance has cage match, um, is, has the <laughs> ultimate stakes to it, doesn't it? <laughs> I got divorced in 2016, and that's after 20 years. And one of the things that I found sort of disheartening about going on the dating scene when you're 40. Right? It's because I had just turned 39, I think. And, you know, I hadn't been on, on a date date since I was a teenager was how unserious it was and how little at stake there was and how frivolous it seemed to me. And to be fair, right, that's what those other people were looking for. That's what they wanted. It's not what I wanted because I don't really know how to do stuff like that. You know, it's either worthwhile doing and I do it or it's not worthwhile do it and it's and I don't do it or I complain the whole time. You know what I mean? Which is, you know, endless amounts of complaining. And <laughs> I don't know how anyone put up with me during that time, but uh, it was just nothing serious in it. Do you fight anymore? Um, no, sadly, I stopped fighting, like competing in 2014, 16. Something like that. So then like I was like 35 and what was happening was I wasn't healing so good anymore. So I broke my hand on somebody's forehead. The hand took forever to heal and uh, I was getting ready for a title fight, which would have been amazing because I was the number one contender. And then a boy was hurt during a match. He hurt himself and he was paralyzed. And I was like, okay, I think it's time for me to get out. <laughs> so um, it was pretty brutal. I wrote about it in The Quitters, which was my 2017 book, where I had a, a sequence of 15 MMA flash fictions uh, to start the book, and it ends with that happening. But I was still a coach for a long time. I was still training and was doing a lot of uh, commentary, like cage-side commentary, which is the best because you have the best seats in the house. When the plague hit, I had to stop going to the gym because these are like storefront gyms and it's just plague central over there. And I really wasn't about, you know, getting my partner sick or my son, of course. So I was like, nah. so for a couple of years, just been kind of training in my basement and hitting a bag and it gets so boring. You know, I'll go six months and I'll drop like 15 pounds and then I'll be like, ice cream, you know what I mean? <laughs> and so uh, I'm in an ice cream kind of phase right now. But uh, my son wants to do Muay Thai kickboxing. So I'm going to take him to the gym and I'm going to use it as an excuse to uh, get back in there. So speaking of your son, there is maybe we'll wrap up with a poem that uh, he inspired. Oh, God. Yeah. The sun is big and the earth dirt. The sun is big and the earth dirt. 
and the way out and the way back break grips and make the climb over the wall alone like roses as in ivy dead as in ice crack stone as in ellipses I'll never forget how wild roses came in winter in Northern California, how I never imagined such a simple thing, how I could still fail an act of innocence, how an empire can fall, how it can steal our earnestness. I am earnest about bodies in the street. I'm earnest about children in cages. I'm earnest about my desire to destroy. Where blood mixes with dirt, uj malditush, the damned, raise a city, learn how to modulate weakness, but not what ending up in turn means. They do not understand those who understand. They do not worry those who worry and flee. Their fathers do not bend. Their mothers do not wail. Their perfectly limpid faces unflexing. And maybe their mealy mouths can tongue long collapsing words like civility as in catalepsis or child as in where is and where are. Can they resist those who love to be bound and burying those who do not? Because the sun is big and the earth dirt. Because connecting the dots is no challenge at all. Because that is what being damned means. Carlo Matos, thank you so much for joining us today on Authors Unbound. It's always a pleasure to talk with you and to hear you read. Thanks for sharing your poetry with us today. Thanks so much for having me. I had an amazing time. It was so lovely to see you guys again. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Authors Unbound. Look for us anywhere you find your favorite podcasts, Google, Apple, Amazon, or Alexa. We're out there everywhere. Just ask for Authors Unbound.